Are you interested in leadership? Welcome to the Menzies Leadership Podcast. Tune in for insights and observations about leadership, the challenges and blind spots, attributes and values that you need to lead now and in the future. I'm Liz Gillies, Menzies Foundation CEO and your host today. Let's get started. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Al Jeffrey, co-founder and CEO of Cornerstone. You make quite an amazing contribution to the world already, Al. Uh, you're an integrated psychotherapist. Uh, you're a top 30 under 30s entrepreneur in Australia, and you've been that twice. Mm-hmm. You've a TEDx speaker, been nominated as Young Australian of the Year. So delighted to welcome you to the Menzies Leadership Forum. So much of what you do, Al, touches on numerous aspects of our work, and I look forward to exploring your thinking about purpose and leadership in what is an increasingly complex, polarised, tribal and challenging world, I think it's fair to say. Just for context, Foundations connected with Al through our work with Regen Melbourne around participatory Melbourne, which is a deep dive into rethinking or reimagining what belonging and connectedness looks like, about understanding citizen leadership in all its forms in place and really thinking about how community resilience connects with people and the relationships that people have to community. And so it's been wonderful, the contribution you've already made to that work, but it's it's probably a great place to start this conversation. One of the things that I think has been generated from those discussions that we've had to date in that work is just older ways of thinking about belonging and community are being challenged in a world that, um, without wanting to be too negative, people seem to be finding complex and fragmented and with a degree of uncertainty. And I just wondered if we could start there in terms of how you're seeing this idea of community and belonging and connectedness and what your work and practice is suggesting that's um, sort of in where we find ourselves. Thanks for inviting me on to the podcast and, yeah, to have really enjoyed connecting with yourself and the foundation through Regen Melbourne. My experience of this time is, as you've mentioned, one of great fragmentation and a kind of lostness um, in our communities, in our people. And uh, my contact point with that is both individually in as a psychotherapist, working one-on-one with people and with leaders and also in groups. And so I experience every day this sense of confusion, this sense of lostness, this sense of loneliness. Um, and in some sense, also a great urgency. We know we need drastic change and we know we need it quick. And at the same time, we also know that the kinds of change we need are a slow change. They're systemic, they're social, they're cultural, they're deeply psychological, they're ecological. And so they're very slow in some ways and they need to be. And so there's this paradox. Um, in terms of community and belonging, it's... I guess I also experience a great lostness because we live in a, as a generation, at least my generation, where we haven't really experienced a deep sense of belonging or community. We haven't, we don't, we don't really know what that experience is. We know that there's something other than how we are now, but we're not quite sure what that is. And that has also been my experience personally. And that's all I can really speak from. Um, is that I know there's there's something more I 
I do seek, and it is this sense of purpose and participation with the place in which I find myself, this sense of my unique gifts being part of creating a more beautiful, sustainable, just future. But I haven't, hadn't until certain transformative experiences actually experienced that as a possibility. Uh, and so it kind of lay dormant as a seed of uh, yearning, you could say, until having such experiences. So in some way, I guess I see parallels between psychotherapy and community development. We need these corrective experiences that give us a sense of possibility, a sense of what could be possible. And so I'll just to unpack that a bit more, corrective experiences, what were some of those transformational moments that first allowed you to, I suppose, just understand the state that you're talking about? And then how, in what ways did they help you connect or find that connection and belonging that is so apparent in our work in Regen Melbourne? Hmm. One notable one for myself was being part of a, uh, I suppose you could call it a startup accelerator, but it was much more than that in Boulder, Colorado. Um, I was 19 years old. There were 10 of us from 10 different countries and we're living in log cabins at a place called Chautauqua, which was a learning village at the base of the Rocky Mountains in Boulder. And we were there for nine months. And the program was um, a spiritual development program for young social entrepreneurs. So we were all deeply passionate about creating some kind of change in the world. We all had projects um, and we're all deeply committed to also this path of how do we to be? And the program, its slogan was protect your courage. And so it was set up to be a rites of passage program that helped us come to terms with our own unique gifts in the world, to help us um, in some ways hold the vulnerability within ourselves so that we're acting and leading and living both with the vulnerability uh, and the vulnerability as a strength. And so the adaptive quality of vulnerability. And for me, that experience, we sat in circle most days and we shared uh, very vulnerably what was happening for us in our own change-making journeys. And the slogan, protect your courage, was really upheld in this space. And everyone's vulnerability and authenticity was very protected, was very stewarded, was honored, was respected. Um, and in that experience really came to a sense of, wow, I, I had never experienced a kind of community or social space where I felt like my vulnerability was actually my gift. I felt like my kind of most, um, up until then, shame-ridden parts and aspects of myself were actually a big part of what it is I'm here to bring and gift to the world. So it was a corrective experience in that it firstly was an experience that I've never had of deep community and deep reverence for the, the uniqueness and the authenticity in each individual. But it also in that then helped me just reframe my own connection with my own authenticity and sense of sense of purpose. So purpose is a word that emerges often in our conversation and in work of leadership. Um, it's very evident across all the different work that the foundation connects with around leadership that particularly in uncertainty and complexity purpose is a very strong foundational pillar to anchor yourself mm -hmm. uh, in 
time and place and to use as the light, if you like, of how to move forward. Can you explain a little bit about, it seems that part of the experience that you had was about a deeper interrogation of your own purpose. In that in that uh, context, but also in your work more generally, mm-hmm. talk to me a little bit about how you find, how you surface purpose with your clients or with in terms of your own journey and how do you experience it as an anchor in which yeah. to explore authenticity and vulnerability? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great question. Um, I love the power of a good question. Um, I very much resonate with, with your sentiment that amidst chaos, amidst complexity, purpose is is very much a guiding light. It's a moral compass. It's an ethical compass. It's some way of, for me, gathering and navigating and managing my resources in, in all of their ways, my social resources, my energetic resources, financial, social, etc. All of my resources amidst complexity in a way that contributes to wise action. Um, it feels very difficult to enact wise action unless I have some sense of purpose. So purpose for me is very much a compass which helps me to manage resource in some very simple way. Um, a purpose is something that, and in my experience and in working with people, um, there is a, a belief, and I guess my work straddles both Eastern philosophy and a more soul-centric philosophy or ecological philosophy, as well as a Western psychological philosophy. And so when working with clients, I'm what that means is not only looking at pathology, but I'm also looking at possibility and potential. Um, and both are really necessary, not to reduce someone to a pathology, but to hold um, possibility as a frame for them. Uh, and often life moves us, or you could say tempers us in ways that then become our unique gift. My vulnerabilities, my experience of queerness, my experience in my family environment meant that I now live with such sensitivities that mean that I do the work I do. As as like the sensitivities that were developed through maybe the pathology lens were actually what created the possibilities for my gift or my purpose in the world. And so my lens or... uh, in some way approach to supporting surfacing of purpose is through looking back in some way and finding how has life made us and then how can we support it back so for me purpose there is this reciprocal in some way relationship between purpose and how life has made me and therefore how i can help support it back and for me, this is where I guess the notion of regeneration comes in, is that there then becomes this regenerative cycle, this reciprocal rhythm between how life has made me and how I can support it back. Um, and I find that deeply fulfilling and as a gateway into participation. Uh, what's fascinating for me, Al, is though how life has made me is, is a lens that I think many people come to quite easily. Mm-hmm. But this question of how that links to potential and this notion of purpose being an engine or a galvanising sort of force is something that I think is more obscure, not as easy to tap into. 
I'm I'm always surprised at how at how people aren't aren't intrinsically more altruistic in terms of that connection um, as they think for, through about their purpose and their relationship to others. Mm-hmm. You must see that. I don't. Does that is that your experience in the work that you do in this space? Why, you know, why is purpose such an ephemeral? nice to have but not an imperative and, and why do people find it or why don't more people as a matter of course tap into it what are the sort of things the obstacles to that because it, I'm really interested in in how you surface purpose and how you make purpose tangible and defining in the way that you see it yeah it's a really great question in uh so I also work with couples and uh it often often need to remind couples that at our core, we are primitive animals. We are opportunistic, we are self-centered, we are protective, we are survival-oriented. The later, in, I guess in terms of developmental psychology or evolutionary biology, our humanness, our ability to imagine, to have morals, to have language, therefore to be concerned with existential qualms around purpose and fulfillment are much later in our life as human animals. Um, prior to that, and for the majority of our existence, we were primitive survival opportunistic creatures, and that still exists within us. And so developmental psychology would say to that, that only once someone can actually integrate these primitive aspects of ourselves, can we transcend to start to ponder about these existential qualms. And so in psychotherapy, we spend a lot of time doing the work of what Ken Wilber from Integral Theory would say growing up, which is attending to these developmental tasks that mean that we feel safe, we feel protected, our agency we're able to access in the world. And only once we've completed some of these growing up developmental tasks, can we actually move to the waking up tasks, which are more about service to the world, more about an ecocentricity as opposed to an ego or self-centricity. Um, and so there's developmental explanations for the reason why purpose feels really difficult or notions of purpose um, don't surface at a certain point because, and I guess Maslow, um, Abraham Maslow had a very similar notion that there are developmental biological needs that need to be met before we start to have existential concern. Uh, and so both need to be straddled and we're in a time where we kind of need to wake up and grow up at the same time. And often they do need to happen together um, because it's not such a linear process as many aren't. Uh, And so I think it's important to recognize that altruism, um, there are prerequisites. There are some developmental aspects of ourselves that we need to terms with for altruism, or at least for a genuine altruism. It's very easy to put on altruism or to put on nicety and, and kindness, but it's, it's very um, difficult to sincerely be in that stage and place. So uh, it, uh, there's a fantastic... Um... Uh, there's a fantastic presentation I saw at a conference last year that talked about the illusion of altruism which goes, I think, out to this deeper understanding of self and these things. So if other than, I mean, clearly therapy offers one way of exploring this, but in terms of the people listening to this podcast, what are some sort of really concrete steps 
you think you would suggest that people might think about as they move from ego into, as you say, a more existential place where the illusion of altruism moves from perhaps being superficial to something sort of much more deeper and more profound in how people live their lives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and first to that, I do believe it's really important to not rest back into a kind of um, nihilism as well, though, in these conversations where we can end up in this dichotomy of we're all primitive and self-centered and opportunistic or we're all compassionate, lighthearted beings and the world is one. Um, I think all is true and partial and we do need to acknowledge both. Um, and there is hope. There is hope for a compassionate society. It is possible. Um, and though I think we need to be honest with ourselves. And so the the invitation I would offer is to be really honest about the places where we are self-centered, where we are fearful in the face of an other. And this notion of the other um, evolutionarily is frightening to our organism, especially an other that maybe holds opposite views or views other than our own. Um, and so starting to be, just be really honest with ourselves and maybe there's a journaling exercise, maybe it's just something to ponder is where do I collapse into self-protectiveness and um, and my boundaries become hard instead of malleable? They're more barriers than boundaries. Where does this happen for me? Are there particular environments, particular interactions, particular conversations? When do I fall out of relationship into self-preservation? And just being really honest with ourselves because it will happen and it does happen and it needs to happen. But only when we start to acknowledge them can we do what Ken Wilber says to include and transcend. Not just to transcend without including it because then we're not being real with ourselves. Uh, the Menzies Foundation's aspiration is really around asking people uh, to clarify their purpose, to do the sort of internal work that you're suggesting and in that context to reimagine or get a different perspective on our collective responsibility to each other and then to act for the greater good. And I just, I'm really interested in both how you see, you know, that there's obviously in terms of what you suggested, a relationship between those things. The collective responsibility means embracing the other, being open to different points of view. The greater good has is about something that's beyond any one person's conceptualization of what that is. Um, you do a lot of thinking and work around sort of courageous leadership and um, and this uh, and linking who I am as an individual into a broader view of what our community must aspire to in the context of this fragmented, polarized, hyper-connected world. Can you talk a little bit, Al, about how you're seeing the individual in that whole community context and the sort of framing that you you use to suggest ways forward in that regard? Mm-hmm. For me, there's um, usually three aspects to all of my work. There's the the narrative and the the imagination that we hold. So the story we're telling, the ontology, the view of what is. There's then the emotional capacities, and then there's the social capacities. Um, and so my view, I guess, the ontology and where I would normally begin is by understanding what perspectives we're holding. Are we are we still holding a perspective 
of there being this dualism between self and other, that I create a self and then I put it to the world as I guess, the Cartesian divine when Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. And that my beingness is founded on the fact that I think, as opposed to a notion such as Ubuntu, which I I am because you are. Which story are we telling and living in and therefore perpetuating? And so first is, for me, always a kind of excavation of the narrative. Um, you could say the myth, the cosmology, the ideology that we're living through and an understanding of how we got to where we are now. Logically, we, we know that we don't exist without the other, that the relationship exists before the self, that we come into the world and a baby without a regulating other, so without whether it's a mother or a father or another caretaker to help regulate the nervous system of the baby, the baby will actually die. And so we need the other in order to become a self, which is a, a very... Um, drastic inversion of the dominant narratives that many of us live in. And it's a very vulnerable narrative to say that we need each other. And so to first come to terms with that, to, to then come to terms with the fact that, oh, actually, we do, I depend on each other. And so this radical sense of independency, I guess we are problematizing it in the beginning. The second um, piece, for me is then starting to understand um, our own emotional landscape in relationship. So again, starting to understand what is, how do I navigate these movements away and towards otherness? And starting to understand what is my dominant tendency in relationship, whether we use schema therapy, whether we're using kind of emotional regulation and affect um, regulation therapies, but starting to understand how am I in relationship? What is my story? What is my state? And how do I manage that so that I can lead myself so that then I can lead with others? So a lot of, around self-awareness and social awareness, self-management and social management, um, and really being curious about how can I actually intentionally craft a leadership style as opposed to just inheriting one um, and then possibly not working for myself or others or the broader community. And then the third is much more around the social skills. So there's my own inner experience of relationship, but then there's the space between us. And often that's filled with communication, verbal and nonverbal. And so learning the social skills or the interpersonal skills to navigate complex relationship once I can navigate my own and and so this requires you know deep consideration it retar it requires vulnerability it requires um truly knowing yourself I suppose Al. Mm -hmm. what, what 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 compels people to do this like what what's the outcome of this work that you see manifest in terms of you know why why do it a lot of people seem to skate by pretty well without doing it at all um what what do you think this sort of uh consideration results in you know why from your point of view is it an imperative mm -hmm. from my point of view i guess i can see it from the level of the self the level of society and the level of our colleges, why it's imperative in terms of um, 
developing more resilient communities so that we can live in a way that is in accordance with within the bounds of our ecological world. Um, and so I can see it from both, well, from an ecological, from a societal perspective, in the sense of creating societies, therefore just relationships, human relationships that are more just, that are more um, equitable, that are more understanding, that are more oriented around compassion and sensitivity and collaboration. So in a society level, on a personal level, I guess as psychotherapists, we see day to day the pain that people carry. And a lot of it is relational pain. About 80% of people come to see a psychotherapist because of relationship disturbances. And so they're coming with a pain that exists in them from within a relationship, whether it's their intimate partner or a familial relationship. And so they're here to feel more connected or more seen, um, more acknowledged in their relationship. So there's a personal pain. Um, whichever level someone is coming at, I think, um, of course, the will to change is, is the first step to change. And until the pain in not changing outweighs the pain in changing, someone won't act. Um, and I have spent a lot of time trying to get people to change in the past. Um, and it feels very, um, or doesn't feel regenerative for me because they're not ready. And people don't really come to change. They come to stop the pain is something that I was always told. Um, and it's something that I'm experiencing more and more now. It doesn't work unless somebody doesn't, unless someone wants to change. It's not up to me. And it's really not. But, so your suggestion is that, that that in order to become the person that you want to be in the world, in order to understand your relationship with others, even in, in order to open up your capacity to lead in whatever meaning that has, that it starts with this deeper understanding of yourself and this aspiration to change um, in order to move into, to build out that sort of capabilities. Is, is, is that the sort of the thing that you suggest that people understand in thinking about how to build out their own leadership capability? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's quite accurate. The, both the aspiration to change and the aspiration to change for all of your relationships for your family, for maybe your partner, your kids, if you have kids, um, for your community, and also for yourself. I think it's really important to note the, um, again, this paradoxical sense that you are a self and also you are a relationship. You are embedded in a sea, a web of relationships. And so change is for both. It's not completely self-centered to say I'm changing because I'm in pain. And it's not, um, um, sometimes it's not productive to just say, I'm changing just for my community. Because unless you feel the reason why for yourself, you're also changing, it's very hard to keep up the original impetus of change. It takes a lot of motivation, a lot of will, a lot of commitment, a lot of integrity and accountability. And unless we're connected with that within ourselves, then it can be really hard to to keep the momentum in my experience. And, and to close that circle, Al, the place in which to start to explore that is in this conversation with yourself about the purpose and the values and principles that lie at the heart of who you are. 
Mm-hmm. Is that what you're suggesting the cycle is? Yeah. Yeah. And over time, you start to realize, and I mean, even the way I'm speaking about it here is that there is this dichotomy between self and world or self and community. But start to realize um, that they're really not that dichotomous. They're really not that separate. That as I come closer to the pain of myself, I'm coming closer to the pain of the world. And that is a beautiful, virtuous cycle of change. And when I'm able to to come to that place, it's like that whole story, that whole narrative of separation, in some ways, the original scar of being born into this culture is collapsed into some sea of common human predicament. Um, so, so, Alex, so, you know, you hear so much in leadership about the Im- importance of vulnerability, about the importance of um, authentic, being authentic, and yet it's sometimes hard when you read those or you listen to people talk about those things, it's hard to actually really know what they are. I think from what you suggested today, that vulnerability and authenticity comes from as uh, the inner core of who you are and how that manifests in the world, that there's not a separation between self and community, that in order to be vulnerable and authentic, there needs to be alignment. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that is that? Can you give some sense about the reality or the actuality, I suppose, of authenticity and vulnerability in that context? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. why people seem to have such aspiration about that but seem to find it so difficult to tap into it? Yeah, yeah. I often use the words, or actually Esther Perel, um, yourself and, and listeners might be familiar with her work on relationships in the 21st century, but um, it's very much related to attachment theory. Many of us will trade authenticity for acceptance. And so, and especially in our earlier years, when all we are really worried about up until the age of about six, really, is acceptance, belonging, safety, and protection. And we will do anything we need to do in order to be accepted. If that means trading my authenticity for acceptance, then I will do that. If that means not crying because it makes mummy and daddy upset and I feel like they move further away from me, then I will not do that. Whatever means that I feel close to people in a safe way, which is often what makes them feel safe, I will do. And so we end up trading our authenticity for acceptance. Um, and these patterns carry with us until we do do what David White would call living twice, going back and doing the kind of audit, going back and looking at how have I traded my authenticity for acceptance and actually recognizing that I'm in a different environment now. I'm not in that environment. I have so many more resources, skills, tools, um, that I don't have the same risks. Well, they might be there, but I can respond to them in a different way. And so I can actually bring these parts of myself to the world again and still be accepted. And maybe if I'm not accepted, that too, I have resources to manage now. So this is that process of kind of growing up. That's the living twice to go back and see what have I left behind and why, and having compassion for those places, um, that they're not our fault, that they are our responsibility. 
to pick up and leave no stone unturned so that we can live more fully in our life. And we can also create spaces that enable and model what that might be for others around us as well. One of the themes of your work is this idea of courage in leadership. Um, and courage comes up courage comes up in all sorts of contexts in our work at the Menzies Foundation as well. It's sort of the it seems to be the thing that galvanizes you to move beyond the current state into a future state. It sort of seems to be one of the fundamental requirements, the engine that drives you to becoming a as I said, leaders, I, I get nervous about leadership because it, it, apply, it implies a certain state, but it's yeah. Uh, so, but to lead with, you know, in small and large ways, whatever that is, uh, can you talk to me a little bit about how you think about and why you focus particularly on courage and leadership? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, well, it's hard to speak about courage without speaking about the etymology of the word core, which is from the heart. Um, and Yes, there's a, a strong link for me between integrity and courage because of, um, and we, to link it back to what we were just exploring about authenticity and acceptance, that it often feels, and it feels um, like a strong truism, that it takes immense courage to be authentic. It takes immense courage to say something that um, once, if said, would lead to something detrimental or unsafe or challenging to the sense of self. So it takes courage to share from the from the heart. It takes courage to to be in integrity. Um, and for me, we need leaders who are willing to do the courageous thing, who are graceful enough to say the thing that no one else is saying, who are graceful enough and have the capacity to feel maybe what others aren't enabling themselves to feel in a certain space. I actually feel really disrespected. I feel really alone. I feel like what you just said really didn't land with me. And I don't know why just yet, but I just want to just speak that. Um, to be able to feel maybe what's unfelt and then to speak from the heart, to let that be felt in the room. For me, that's the repatterning, the reforming, the restoring of our shared spaces. Is that it does take someone willing enough and capable enough to hold their sensitivity with lightness to speak that authenticity and strength so that it can then be a shared experience. And how do you cultivate courage? It's a great question. I, In my experience, um, um, it does come to community, which I think is this interesting paradox because I'm made by community uh, and I need community to make me in certain ways I needed that space to protect my courage. I've needed chosen family. I've needed people around me who protect me when I share the thing that I've never shared before, who honor it, who see it, who do really witness it and celebrate it in me so that I can include it in myself again. So then I can go to places that maybe don't protect my courage so much and feel really supported. So for me, and Parker Palmer speaks about this a lot in his work of um, the Center for Courage and Renewal, which a lot, which is around circles of trust, circles that protect our courage, circles that create spaces for the soul to speak, for those sensitive, shy parts of ourselves. And those experiences are those corrective experiences. 
where all of a sudden I feel that it can be safe for me to bring this to the world so that then I can go back to the other world where maybe I haven't had so many of those experiences and have at least this experience as a memory in myself that I can hold this. So it, it, it takes us to, I think, the. I'd like to just spend a, um, some time before we finish just asking you about your own leadership journey. So, mm-hmm. Al, you, you bring to this work a, a great affinity with what is regenerative, mm-hmm. a great sense of the, the collective responsibility in our relationships to each other. And despite so much of what you read about the world and despite so much about people's cynicism about leadership and even the future, it seems, increasingly. You know, AI is going to take us to extinction. Climate change is at a tipping point. Levels of polarisation in the world are unparalleled. Do you know what I mean? There's this, this is the sort of narrative that we're surrounded by. Tell me how in your own, for yourself, you came to a position where regeneration rather than extraction became of such primacy in terms of how you think about yourself, your own leadership and the world? Mm-hmm. Hmm. I will say much of it is my, I feel like I've always had quite a contemplative tone. So being my mum is Indian and so I do have, um, yeah, I would say one foot in the West and one foot in the East and have always had a really strong appreciation for Eastern philosophy and Eastern ways of seeing the world. And so I've always been quite contemplative um, and have had a, a meditative practice for quite so many years. And I feel, um, so I spend a lot of time just being quite reflective and introspective, um, but really it is my personal pain in the world that has led me here. And my experience of queerness and my experience of feeling like what feels so true or what feels very authentic for me on the inside somehow felt wrong or perverse or strange or not okay on the outside. And luckily at the time of my life when I was sitting with those questions, I was practicing martial arts and I had a Buddhist teacher. And so my contempt, I could transform into curiosity and my angst into activism. Um, And so in some way I I had the resources around me. I had the ecology of people and practices of perspectives um, to help me, I guess, transform that experience into something creative and um, outward in the world. It meant that I didn't recoil back into myself um, and away from the world. Um, and so I've always had this fascination and between what's happening inside me and what's happening around me and feeling parallels. Um, and because of that, I've always been deeply curious about other people's experiences. And then through that affirmed that, oh, it seems like this is a shared experience. Seems like this isn't just my pain. This is a shared pain for the world and in the world. Um, and then in my own experience of, of wanting or needing in some way, I guess when I connected to that deep enough, there's a need to do something about it. Like there's an agitation. I can't rest until something is, is being done. Um, and that's always my, 
my barometer in some way to check that how I'm going about my work in the world is still um, is still true to that inside me. Um, so I'm not living someone else's life. I guess trying to balance this um, constant journey of what's what the world needs and what I need, and both feel really really important. Um, because I can't continue to do what I feel at least the world needs unless I'm meeting my needs. Um, and if that means slowing down amidst the sense of urgency, then I, I must do that. Um, and I need to get better at making choices. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I'm really balancing these two, which I could relate to the Eastern view and the Western view as well. Um, it seems like there is this constant one eye inward for me and one eye outward, um, which I hold as a, a posture in my leadership. And now when you look back at your leadership journey uh, and you reflect on these, uh, this in deeper understanding of yourself, this sense of yourself with others, challenges that you've come to, when you look back on it, what are, what are the reflections that you would share that might give people some sense of how to move through this way of becoming and being? Do you have any reflections on things that were really useful or things that unlocked this capacity or what are your reflections on where you, you're not that old, Al, but where you've got to so far? Um, reflections on where I've got to so far. I mean, I've come back to community. Community has been not absolutely everything, but of course, incredibly, incredibly important. Um, and very personal community, not not just professional community, not just networking events, but um, most of my leadership development, I would say, has actually happened not at leadership development retreats, not at offsites, not at conferences. Um, it's in the vulnerable conversation with a friend that you care about deeply that that something's hurting in the relationship, and I need to talk to you about this otherwise I'm going to turn away from the relationship and that hurts because I care about it um it's those conversations and it's where I am very personally implicated in the act of leadership and what that really means as a human act not a commercial act it's a human to human um way of being together that's where I'd say most of my leadership development has taken place which means I've needed to make sure that the atmosphere that I create in my friendships, the um, culture in my friendships is, can withstand that, can withstand honesty and accountability and integrity, and of course, fun and play and joy. Um, but for me, that's been the foundation of, a lot, of most of my development, um, which feels deeply personally fulfilling because I get to swim in those waters every day. And at the same time, um, and because of the safety in those relationships, I can come to terms with some of the deeper aspects of my own self and other leadership. So I would just invite um, everyone to, I guess, not, um, and it's different for everybody, but to consider our own personal relationships and what leadership looks like in those relationships and to broaden the concept of leadership, which is something that we've spoken about a lot beyond a title of someone with a certain stature or status um, and to see leadership as a 
form of stewarding relationships to people in place every single day. And that's something that we all are part of. I think that's a pretty good place to leave it, Al, I have to say. Um, that our relationship to each other, our collective responsibility to people, place and planet, mm. um, our sense of the role each of us can play in cultivating the relationships that build out the opportunity to live and be in the world in that way very much sits at the heart of the work we're doing. And I'm very grateful for the time you spent with us today exploring that um, that imperative almost, I think it probably is, but also how from an individual point of view we might see ourselves in that space and the sort of journey we might take mm-hmm. in manif- making that manifest and making that something that's tangible and real. So thank you very much for your time today. I much appreciate it. Thank you, Liz, and thanks for the beautiful question.